So we're continuing on in John. We're reading from chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, which will be on the screen behind me and on page 1063 in the Blue Bibles. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. Thanks, Helen, and good morning, everyone. If we haven't met yet, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here at church, and it'd be great to um, keep that Bible passage open in front of you as we look at it now. Um, But I wonder, under what circumstances would you find yourself saying something like this? It doesn't get any better than this. Okay, let me give you a few examples, and maybe you can see which one sounds the best to you. So you're sitting on the balcony with your favorite people, the sun's setting over the ocean, You can hear the waves crashing, the pop of the champagne cork. Pretty good. Uh, Maybe your doesn't get any better moment is celebrating a big win for your team. Claps on the back, laughing as you go back through all the details. Uh, Here's another one. Um, That mysterious one minute or so that happens every so often at the family table where all you hear is the sound of clattering knives and forks. And just for a second, everyone's just happy eating together. One for the introverts. Uh, Maybe your doesn't get any better moment is just getting home at the end of a long week with no agenda, just a quiet house, a new book, uh, and a very large wedge of brie. Okay? I don't know, maybe it's something else for you, but, you know, those doesn't get any better moments are great, aren't they? They're a bit elusive, though, uh, don't you think? It's almost like as soon as you say the phrase, you're admitting that it's kind of all downhill from there. The reality of back-to-school blues. I don't know if that's too real for anyone at the moment. It's a reminder, though, that we're often looking forward to better days. You know, we wish we could have those moments of rest, of celebration, of peace. 
I reckon one of the classic doesn't get any better moments for lots of people across different human cultures would have to be a wedding. Sure, there are often a whole range of emotions going into a wedding, the tensions that come with a momentous change. But wow, you know, two families coming together, splashing out for a big celebration with so many loved ones in one spot, a husband and wife committing themselves to each other, generations all out on the D floor. You know, it's pretty great. Until the wine runs out. Now, that would be a bit of a shame at a wedding today, but, you know, in ancient Palestine, the culture where Jesus and his family lived, that was a disaster because these weddings were meant to be like week-long celebrations for the whole community. You'd want comfortable shoes, I think. Um, It was the groom's responsibility to make sure it was a great party. Uh, You can see that in how the, the banquet master compliments the groom in the passage when he tastes Jesus' wine. So can you imagine the embarrassment that groom must have felt on his big day as he noticed the guests starting to kind of mutter amongst themselves, the aunties talking about leaving early. You can imagine whatever the ancient equivalent of dancing queen was, it kind of just scratches to a stop and there's that awkward moment and Jesus' mum says to him, They have no more wine. And so begins one of Jesus' most famous acts. John calls it his first sign. Uh, The thing about signs is they point to something. So what does this one point to? It's a strange one in some ways. You know, we don't get a lot of detail about what this miracle looks like. John focuses on other details, uh, like Jesus' response to his mother, Woman, why do you involve me? Uh, It's pretty abrupt. I I like the way Helen read it. You know, if a son called his mum woman today, uh, maybe you'd like to try that. I don't don't think it would go down very well. Uh, Yeah, maybe steer clear of that. Um, But in Jesus' day, okay, he's not being rude. Uh, In fact, you get a very tender example of woman when Jesus speaks to Mary from the cross a bit later. But Jesus, no doubt, he is pushing back. He's saying, you and I are not on the same page when it comes to this thing. And we get the first clue to the meaning of this sign. Because Jesus continues, my hour has not yet come. It's the first of many mentions of Jesus' hour in John. The second clue is there in verse 11. When John makes a very explicit comment about the miracle, it was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So whatever Jesus does here, it's going to say something about his hour and about his glory. And John thinks it will persuade people to believe in Jesus. So with all that in mind, let's dive into the meaning of this sign and just a heads up it might blow our doesn't get better moments out of the water i've got two statements and two questions there for you in your outlines Uh, statement number one jesus replaces the old with something new we don't get all the details we might like but we do get did you notice a whole verse focusing on what kind of containers 
Jesus used. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, it's always worth noticing what an author gives space to. Of all the details he could have included, John thought that this was worth spelling out to us. Another kind of reading tool that I find really helpful, especially when reading the Bible, is if the author tells you the purpose for why they're writing, then let that be your guide for interpreting the details. Um, And sometimes that's really hard to work out, but John's actually very upfront about his purpose. In chapter 20, verse 31, we'll keep coming back to this verse. He says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Messiah. It's an Old Testament word for God's chosen king. So how might the fact that Jesus used six stone water jars used in Jewish cleansing rituals to create wine, help us believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Ritual cleansing was such a massive part of Old Testament believers' lives. Uh, It was all part of how God reminded his people that our world is tainted because of sin, ourselves included. You know, you can't just rock up before the holy God as if everything's fine. For right relationship to happen between us and him, even between us and each other, we need cleansing. And here's Jesus turning something used for cleansing into vessels of celebration. And that's glorious because Jesus is showing his first followers that I'm here to bring something new. As Messiah, I'm going to fulfill the Old Testament cleansing laws. Water into wine. Let me take you back to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached in the lead up to the exile of God's people. When the Babylonians had Jerusalem surrounded, Jeremiah had the tough gig of telling people that this was happening because of their constant rejection of God often hiding their disinterest in knowing God under a cloak of religion. But Jeremiah says, well, God has promised judgment. And one of the hallmarks of God withdrawing his presence from his people was this. No more weddings. Uh, Three times, Jeremiah warned, God will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom. Judgment means No fellowship, no celebration. But then comes Jeremiah 33, and God promises to rescue his people. He loves them. He won't forget his promises to them. And two things stand out from that passage. First, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom. How can that be with the record of sin still hanging over them? with the issues of the heart very much at play, well, God promises, I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. So how glorious is it to get to John chapter 2 and see what Jesus is up to? 
restoring celebration and fellowship in a way that pointedly suggests uh, you're not going to need those cleansing jars anymore. When Jesus' hour comes, the time for cleansing ends and the time to celebrate starts. He replaces the old with something better. The challenge for us then is let Jesus exceed your expectations. You know, the tragedy in John's day was so many of the religious insiders missed what Jesus came to offer because they couldn't let go of the old. In the very next chapter, they're arguing about matters of cleansing and they bring up Jesus' rising popularity as one of the big problems that's not going well. But as readers of John, we're thinking, hang on, Jesus is the one you should be going to, not arguing about when it comes to cleansing. We humans like the familiar. We like to feel in control, like we've got it all sorted. I think we can sympathize with those Jewish leaders who felt like they had the Old Testament laws all worked out. But tragically, they end up missing the whole point They got so attached to their religion, they missed the relationship with the God who gave them those laws. I think it's tempting to come to Jesus thinking that it's his job to take the things already happening in my life and make them a bit better. But what if he wants to blow our categories out of the water, so to speak? Perhaps you're here today expecting Jesus to inspire you to do better. What if he wants to recreate you? Perhaps you're hoping he'll help sort of tidy up some of the mess in your life. What if he wants to wipe the whole thing clean forever? You might be expecting a Jesus of rules and rituals. Don't miss the celebration. Whatever expectations you may have today, let's be open to Jesus exploding them. Statement two, Jesus gives a taste of the new creation. If you've ever had the feeling that Jesus is kind of about killing the party, you've at least got to stop and wonder as we hit verse nine. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. It's one of those doesn't get any better than this moments for sure. The cellar is well stocked. The party can go on for days. And the master of the banquet, who's hosted heaps of weddings, I imagine, reckons this is one of the best he's seen because there are new surprises that just keep getting better, like this extra fancy wine. Have you had one of those moments where you're gathered with loved ones and for a second at least you can look around and everyone's having a good time and you can just think, wow, I'm, I'm really grateful for these people. In our broken world, those big events are always touched by some kind of relational stress or alcohol being misused and things getting ugly. But we do get little tastes of joy, don't we? And a big part of that joy is those relationships. 
If you've ever had that thought when you're with the people you love and enjoying them, this is what it's all about. The God who made you would say, yeah, you're onto it. Once again, the Old Testament scriptures shed light on the glory of Jesus' first sign. Let me read some of Isaiah 25 for you now. On this mountain, Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. It's mouth-watering stuff. It's our maker affirming, this is what you were made for. Life to the full, enjoying being with each other and God. But just to be honest, like that's not what we experience. Not often anyway, not perfectly. There's a barrier that stops us from enjoying life as it should be. The ugly side of alcohol, relational friction, they're symptoms of the deeper issue. Just like the Israelites of Jeremiah's day, we've all put a barrier between us and God. We all have that natural bent to take the good things that God gives and use them to do life on our own terms. And so we live in a world that has severed its connection from the life giver. But listen to the next verse of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isn't that what we need? Not just a little tweak, but a brand new creation. A world no longer stained by sin and death. And Jesus chose that day in Cana in Galilee at the wedding of a family friend to show that's exactly what he came to give. An end to that dark shroud between people and God. Little did most of the wedding guests realize, but they got a taste of better days. In your darker moments, do you ever think that God is stingy? Those six jars held 480 to 720 liters of wine. The cellar will be well stocked in the new creation. This sign points to the -the over-the-top grace of the new creation. By grace, I mean God showing kindness to the undeserving. You know, when the master of the banquet heaps praise on, you know, this clueless groom in verse 10, you can't help but think, well, hang on. I think credit is going to the wrong person here. Now, not only does that display Jesus' beautiful humility It's a sign of how God treats all of those who trust in his son. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. In fact, we become the beneficiaries of the goodness of Jesus himself. Instead of being humiliated in the presence of a holy God, we share in his honor. Which leads us to question one. How much does a wedding cost? 
Uh, Weddings are full of big emotions and not just for the happy couple. For married couples, they can be heartwarming reminders of the vows that you once made. For some, it raises the melancholy question, well, how did things get so far off track for us since our wedding day? For many, the wedding of a friend or family member gets you wondering, with excitement or maybe sadness, I wonder if I'll ever have a day like this. Can you imagine standing where Jesus stood that day, this young single man at a family wedding with his mum and his friends? It would only be natural for someone in that situation to have pause at some point in the celebration, to stare off in the distance a little bit and long for his own wedding day. And John tells us, actually, that's exactly what's going on, although maybe not in the way we first expect. It's ironic that Jesus acts almost as if he were the groom in this story, making sure that everyone's got plenty to drink. Because in John 3, John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom. Now, there's no wedding in Nazareth for Jesus, and although occasionally modern writers like to stir up controversy claiming that Jesus was married, the fact is none of the best historical records um, of his life, the Gospels in the New Testament, record that he was married. And yet it is appropriate to think of Jesus as the bridegroom. Come back with me again to Isaiah as God continues those promises of a new creation. Here's Isaiah 62, verse 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This is God speaking to his wayward people, saying, you will be mine. A marriage between God and his people, not in a romantic or sexual way, but as a full expression of what human marriages point to. Self-giving love, dead-set commitment, enjoyment of each other. Which means that actually the relationship that matters most is on offer to everyone whether you're happily married, in a hard marriage, happily single, not so happily single, everything that marriage should point towards is found in knowing Jesus, the bridegroom. Our deepest longings to be loved and cherished are found in him. Because here is Jesus, God in the flesh, looking on as a family friend gets married longing for his wedding day, when he will be joined to his bride, the church, forever. Which helps explain that comment he made to his mum. My hour has not yet come. Jesus is thinking of that great wedding to come between wayward people and their God, and he's thinking about how much that wedding is going to cost him. Normal weddings are an expensive thing to pull off. 
The marriage between Jesus and his church is next level. No expenses spared. And we realize that in John's gospel when Jesus' hour does come. Here's John 12, verse 23. The crowds have just welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with palm branches. And it's at this point that he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He knows his death is near. And he goes on, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. When Jesus stared off into the distance at Cana that day, he saw the cross set before him. And the decision to provide wine at this wedding isn't just a choice to help his mum out. It's Jesus consciously and willingly starting down the road to Golgotha to pay the price for the sins of the world, to wear the stains, the ugliness, the ways we mistreat God and his people and do away with them so we can come to him, not shrinking back in shame, but radiant like a bride. Have you ever had that experience where someone offers to help you with something and you think, well, I'm going to take that offer with a grain of salt? Maybe that friend who, you know, just hasn't quite delivered in the past or perhaps you're thinking, I know you mean well, but I don't think you know kind of what you're committing yourself to here. I've been that friend more often than I care to admit. What you've got to love is a friend who's willing to put their money where their mouth is. And that's Jesus to the end. You can trust him to bring those better days because he knew exactly what it would cost him. And he committed himself to it that day in Galilee. And he never wavered. And you might be here today thinking, well, Jamie, it's nice to talk about a right relationship with God, but you don't know my past. I don't. Or, you know, you're making it sound great, but, you know, what about the hard bits of being a Christian in this world? That's a fair question. But can I just say, you can trust Jesus with all of the above, because He put his money where his mouth is. In fact, he put his body on the line. Would someone who didn't really love you do that? Would someone who is trying to trick you be willing to pay such a price for you? That clueless bridegroom, he he got a taste of the free gift of Jesus that day. And that's exactly what he offers each of us today, to treat us better than our sins deserve, to take our shame and replace it with honour. So question two, are you looking forward to better days? All of this to say, you know those longings that you have for things to be better, for fighting to stop, to be loved for better or worse, to rest 
for sickness and grief and even death itself to just stop tearing us apart? They're not crazy. Jesus' first sign tells us it's actually right and reasonable to long for better days. And that encourages us in two directions. I think towards godly satisfaction and towards godly dissatisfaction. Okay, let's talk about godly satisfaction. I imagine all of us will be biased in one of two ways when it comes to this topic. Some of us will have no problem believing that life with Jesus is all about celebration. And your challenge might be to see how the seriousness of Jesus' authority and sacrificial obedience to him kind of fits in with that. Others of us have the opposite bias, where it's easy to believe that following Jesus is all about dutiful service, and your challenge is to remember that the goal of that whole thing is joy and celebration. I wonder which way you're kind of more likely to be biased. For me, I confess it's the latter. I can be quite guilt-driven. And I gravitate more naturally towards seeing life with Jesus as a duty. The fact that Jesus' first sign was to get a party started. The fact that his first miracle that showed his glory was getting this wedding going on and on. It's a real challenge to that way of thinking. Yes, obedience and sacrifice are crucial to following Jesus. But in the end, the one we follow is Jesus, the over-the-top banquet provider. And there is satisfaction to be found in him. To wake up every morning knowing that I am clean in God's sight, no matter how I might feel I'm doing at the moment. To know that Jesus cherished me that much, that he saw the cost and started down the road to Golgotha. To know that life with him is heading towards a lavish feast where the wine will never run out, surrounded by people I love, and with Jesus himself at the head of the long, long, long table. If you resonate with that kind of duty-only bias like me, let John too give you a great reason to divert more energy and focus towards celebrating God's kindness to you and thanking him for the taste of heaven we do get now. Let's work on godly satisfaction. And when you have those moments, enjoying food and drink with loved ones, and hey, we get a chance to do that over lunch later, just remember, this is a little entree taste of the new creation. Which means you can be thankful for the moment you're in without kind of loading it with all the weight of needing to be perfect. It does get better than this. The day is coming better than the best wedding reception you've ever been at. This passage leads towards godly dissatisfaction too. Knowing that Jesus came to replace the old with something better, that he's come to bring in a new creation where the pains of conflict, sin, sickness, and death are replaced with the joy of eternal being with Jesus. 
it begs the question, are my doesn't get better than this moment's a tad small? Am I looking for satisfaction in things that just can't deliver? In that perfect group of friends who will never let you down? In that elusive, quiet weekend where everything is just so? In finding that partner who gives you everything that you need? Or is it the comforts of food and drink in and of themselves to make you feel good? They're all good things to enjoy, but they will never satisfy. Only Jesus will never let you down. He's the one that will give you rest from your struggles. He's the one who knows and loves you perfectly, with whom you have nothing to prove. And he's the giver of all those other good things. Let those moments of delight now point you towards him. We should expect a measure of dissatisfaction in the here and now because we live in the hour between the cross and the hour that the cross is ushering in. Jesus said in John 5, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. That hour has broken into our world. Just see Lazarus's story in John 11. But we are waiting for it to fully come when Jesus returns to usher in that new creation. And so we long for it to come. And we long for more people to be ready to rise to live that day. That's the kind of dissatisfaction I think we can call godly. It's both a challenge to the things that we're chasing now. But it's also just such a comfort when we are touched by the brokenness of our world. It does get better than this. Are you looking forward to better days? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for choosing to pay the cost for our place at the banquet in eternity. Please give each of us real satisfaction in you in the here and now as we delight in your goodness and your love for us. Please also teach us to hunger and thirst for the day that you return. Help us to look up from the things that keep us busy each day to that feast when all will be new. Amen.